Hello and welcome to Hillcrest To Go. I'm your host, John Parker. Today, Dr. Tom Goodman shares a sermon called Getting Jesus Right. Here's Dr. Tom Goodman. You know, seeing them reminds me of a conversation I had with another couple, both of whom were raised at our church. It was a little over 12 years now, and they were sitting in my office, and they wanted to get married, and we began the process of planning their wedding. And I asked them the question that I typically ask couples who have come to me asking about marriage. I said, what drew the two of you together? And uh, the young woman looked at her husband-to-be and kind of smiled and said, he gets me. And what she meant by that was other people don't necessarily always understand me, but he does. Not everybody can interpret my quirky moods, but he does. Not everyone can appreciate my dreams for the future, but he does. He, he gets me. Now, it's important for us to get somebody if we're going to be in a good relationship with them. And that includes being in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to get Jesus right. How do you get Jesus right? Now, that's an important question because so many people in our world get Jesus wrong. From an influential professor to a screenwriter to uh, a popular uh, musician on the radio, there are so many people who get Jesus wrong. So how do you get Jesus right? How do you properly understand him? Well, this passage today tells us four things we need to understand in order to get Jesus right. You can follow along on the sermon notes inside the online bulletin, hillcrest.church bulletin, uh, on your mobile device at home or those of you who are in the building on your mobile device as well. And let's write down these four things that we need to understand in order to get Jesus right. First of all, he reveals God's nature. If you want to get Jesus right, you need to understand that he reveals God's nature. Look at verse 15. It says, he is the image of the invisible God. Now, to say God is invisible does not simply mean that he cannot be seen with the eyes. That's obvious. But when it says here that he is invisible, it means that he cannot be understood just by our own human brains, uh, not unless he reveals himself to us. And he revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. It's just as Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, Jesus wasn't saying there, you just take a look at me uh, in my dark-haired, olive-skinned, Middle Eastern maleness, and you'll understand what God physically looks like. That's not what Jesus was saying. But Jesus was saying, if you want to understand God, take a look at my behavior, take a look at my character, take a look at my actions, and you'll understand God. And so if you're trying to understand more about Jesus, if you're trying to make up your mind about uh, following Jesus as your Savior and Lord, then you need to go into the Gospels and take a look at how he treated outcasts. Because the way he treated outcasts tells you something about God's attitude toward those of us who are social or moral outcasts. And you need to go into the Gospels and look at what made Jesus angry or what made Jesus laugh. Because when we're reading those stories about what made Jesus angry or what made him laugh, we're looking into something about the character of God. We discover something that makes him angry or makes him laugh. 
When we look at Jesus and we hear his words, his longing about how all people should treat each other with justice and fairness, we're seeing something about the priority of God who wants to see to it that all people in society and all the societal structures are done with fairness and with justice. You want to learn a little bit more about God? You want to know who God is? Look at Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. Here's the second thing that you can write down. He sustains God's creation. So you want to get Jesus? You want to understand him? Not only does he reveal God's nature, he sustains God's creation. Now in our day, in our culture, it's popular to regard Jesus as an intriguing man, a moral teacher, a way shower, as somebody who founded uh, a religious movement that has become a global institution. But there's so much more about Jesus. And those who first knew him and wrote, wrote down what they knew of him in our Bibles, they talked about all the, 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 all, the, the, all the other things that we need to know about Jesus. So take a look at verses 16 and 17. It says, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, you notice how Paul lists off the divisions of creation almost impatiently. Things in heaven, things on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, or authorities. You name it, he created it, and he stands above it. That carpenter who died uh, on the outskirts of Jerusalem on a cross was, in fact, the wellspring from which all creation flowed and the ocean toward which all creation goes. You take a look at this passage, it says that it was by him and through him and for him that all things were created. In other words, in Jesus, creation has its origin, it has its coherence, and it has its destiny. So look first at the passage, it says, all things were created by him. He stands as the fountainhead from which all things flow, physical and spiritual, earthly and unearthly. They have their origin in him. As John chapter 1, verse 3 says, through him all things were made. And this passage also says that it was not only by him that all things were made, but it was through him that all things hold together. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, the Son sustains all things by His powerful Word. And so Christ stays engaged with what He brought into being. He's not some absentee landlord that got things started and then walked off to let them run by their own natural laws. He is with you and me at every moment of our lives. It doesn't always feel like that, but we take it on faith because this passage and many others tell us that he sustains that which he created. And then it says all things have their destiny in him. They have their meaning in him. Creation exists to fulfill his aims and to serve his purpose and to put on display his glory. Now, after reading this portion of Colossians chapter 1, and then you go back and read the stories in the Gospels about how Jesus performed various miracles, and you can say, of course, of course. No wonder when Jesus spoke into the storm, peace be still, the wind and the waves obeyed him. No wonder when Jesus placed his hands upon 
sick people, their bodies were cured. No wonder when Jesus uh, commanded demons to leave a victim, they scurried away like whipped dogs. No wonder when Jesus stood before the graveside of his good friend Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come forth. Even though Lazarus had been dead for four days, Lazarus came forth. Why? Because that ordinary-looking carpenter-turned-rabbi from Nazareth walking the dusty streets of Galilee was the one by whom and through whom and for whom all creation came into existence. Now, such a conviction should change the way you live your life. You know, the reality is there are too many of us that live our lives as if there is a sacred and a secular section of our lives. So there's a sacred section of our lives. There are days where we feel religious. There are activities that we deem as religious. And so we are part of a worship service or we tear up listening to a religious song on the radio or maybe we occasionally open up our Bibles and read them when they're in their mood at home. We feel sacred at that moment. But then we set all that aside to go out into real life And we just don't really see how the Sermon on the Mount has anything to do with how we post on Facebook. Or we don't see how uh, the the fruit of the Spirit has anything to do with how we actually go about making the hard-nosed decisions we need to make at work. We have a sacred section and a secular section in our lives. But if this passage is true, there is no such thing as dividing our lives between the sacred and the secular. All of it is sacred. All of it is holy. All of it is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That Friday night date is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. How you act on the basketball court is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. How you behave on social media is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. How you decide uh, your voting decisions in the voting booth this November is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. All of it is under his lordship because he not only creates, he sustains that which he creates. He is in every moment, every instance, every decision of our lives. And we need to recognize that if we're going to get Jesus. Do you get Jesus right? Do you understand him? We need to understand him in this way. He uh, sustains all of creation. He reveals God's nature. And here's the third thing you can write down. He leads God's people. We see this in verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Now, in point two of this sermon, we talked about the fact that Jesus sustains all of creation. Now, this third point tells us that Jesus sustains his new creation. What is his new creation? Well, as we put it in one of our songs, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. This passage tells us how we came about as the new creation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says that he was the firstborn from the dead. What that means is on on Easter Sunday, on Resurrection Day, he was the first of many to eventually be resurrected. He was the firstborn. And as we uh, join him and we trust in him, we also will be born out of the grave as well at the end of time. But until that time, there's this mystical union we have with the firstborn from among the dead. We are, this passage says, his body, his new creation. Now, these last five months, we have all had to learn, once again, the true meaning of the word church. For a lot of us, for years, maybe for decades, 
We have assumed church is that building you go to once or twice a week. And so we have assumed, therefore, that over these last five months, if the building is closed, the church is shut down. Nothing could be further from the truth. Look at this passage again. In verse 18, we do not read, he is the head of the building, the church. It says he is the head of the body, the church. Now the body is privileged to gather in a building and worship together. And this body of Christ called Hillcrest Church is looking forward to that time, maybe in just a few weeks. We're working through the details right now, maybe in just a few weeks where the body can come into the building again. But just because the building is closed does not mean the body is non-operational. This passage says not he is the head of the building, the church, but he is the head of the body, which is the church. And he is that because he has been resurrected from the dead and we have joined with him and therefore we are part of his body. Now, this has an important implication for us as individual believers And it has an important implication for all of us together who make up this body here called Hillcrest Church. Let me say this word to those of you who are individual believers. It makes no sense for any of us to say, I love Jesus, but I don't love his church. Now understand, there are two different things here. We we need to understand that to be unable to gather with a church for a season is a very different thing than being unwilling to gather with a church anytime. We may be temporarily unable to gather physically in 3D as a church yet, but there are an increasing number of people who are unwilling to gather with any church and identify it uh, as their church home and to get plugged into it and make it work. And, and I've read some of the books, I've read some of the blogs of people who call themselves former Christians, former evangelical Christians who say that church gets in the way of your spirituality, that church is actually toxic to your relationship with God, that in order to search for God or to grow in Him, your church is not necessary, your church needs to be dispensed with uh, because it got in the way of their spirituality. But I certainly agree that some churches are poor examples of the way Christ wants his people to live together. But Ephesians 3 says this, Ephesians 3, chapter chapter 3, verse 10 says, God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. That is a remarkable verse. What is that telling us? You want to know where the wisdom of God is being put on display? You know where the wisdom of God is being put on display? It's not in a university setting somewhere necessarily. It's not in an intriguing book from your favorite author necessarily. The wisdom of God, the manifold, many-hued, multicolored wisdom of God is being made known to the principalities and powers seen and unseen. This passage says it's being made known through the church. And that doesn't just mean it's being made known during a church service when the Bible is opened up. Hopefully that's the case But principalities and powers, seen and unseen, are looking at how you and I, common ordinary people, are relating to each other, getting along, solving problems, resolving conflicts, and the wisdom of God is put on display in that 
very setting. Nothing short of remarkable, this verse. So in light of verse 18, I can say to you as an individual, loving Jesus involves loving what Jesus loves, and Jesus loves the church. But this word from this passage also has something to say to all of us collectively as the body called Hillcrest. The Hillcrest family needs to understand that if we are the body, we have a head, and the head is this one by whom and through whom and for whom all creation has come into being. You know, the reality is large church or small church, all churches sometimes move through a kind of inferiority complex. We get small of vision. We get uh, wrung out and cowardice. Our bravery goes away. But if we realize that our head, the one who is in charge of this church, the one who leads and guides and directs and empowers this church, as the one by whom and through whom and for whom all creation came into be, then fear goes and vision grows. So we need to remember these things regarding who Jesus is. He sustains God's creation. He leads God's people. Here's a fourth thing to write down. He saves God's beloved. He saves God's beloved. Now, if verse 18 is about the body of Christ, the church, verses 19 and 20 are about the work that Christ does to bring us into his body. And these are some remarkable verses. Take a look at these verses again and circle the phrase, God was pleased. God was pleased to do what? Two things. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and God was pleased to do what? To reconcile to himself all things. There are two things that is that this passage says was the great pleasure of God to do. The first thing is God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. Now, we already highlighted that in the first point in this sermon today when it said that he is the exact representation of God, that he displays to the world an invisible God to us. Um, And that was our application of verse 15, uh, where we said he reveals God's nature. So in the Gospels, we see a man named Jesus, and he's walking the dusty roads of Galilee. His feet get blistered. His stomach grumbles at dinner time. He he, uh, sneezes at pollen. He's everything it means to be man. And, And yet verse 19 pulls back the curtain and reveals that that common carpenter of Galilee was God himself veiled in humanity. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. The word all is important there. It wasn't that Jesus was a representation of God among many other representations of God among the great moral teachers and great religious leaders of this world. He wasn't just one sunbeam coming off the surface of the sun in the midst of many other sun rays coming off the surface of the sun. All the fullness of God dwelt in bodily form in Jesus. Everything that God is, Jesus was. The New English Bible translates this verse, the complete being of God by God's own choice came to dwell. Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 goes on to make it even clearer. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. That's remarkable. But look again at verses 19 and 20 because this passage says that God was pleased to do two things. He was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in bodily form in Jesus and second to reconcile all things through Jesus through his blood shed on the cross. So two things. The good pleasure of God was to send his very being into the world in the person of Jesus. And our text says it was the good pleasure of God to reconcile all things at the cross. 
This is remarkable. At one point, our passage has us caught up in the glory of the incarnation. And then this passage turns our attention to the cross. This passage tells us that all the fullness of God came to dwell in bodily form in Jesus, and then it wraps up all that fullness of God in bodily form and nails it to the wood of the cross. This passage is emphatic. It says his blood shed on the cross was that which reconciled us to God. Verses 15 through 20 are very emphatic that Jesus is everything it means to be God. He is the exact representation of God's being. All the fullness of the deity comes to live in bodily form. But then this last part of verse 20 tells us that he's not only everything it means to be God, he's everything it means to be man as well. He got lonely. He was hurt when people misunderstood him. He felt betrayed and abandoned when that happened. He suffered pain when nails went into his hands. And he died like anybody else would under those conditions in that pain and with fluid filling up his lungs. He was everything it means to be God, everything it means to be man as well. The passage tells us in Simon Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, Simon Peter says, For you know, you know this, it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed. Well, of course not, because we were redeemed by nothing less than that one in whom all the fullness of God dwelt in bodily form. It was as if God, our judge, the rightful judge over everything that we do, stood up from the judge's bench, took off his judge's robe, put on his judge's gavel, went and stood next to us in the witness, at the witness table and said, you're free to go. I'm paying the penalty myself. Julie Miller, some years back, made famous a song with lyrics like this. If Christ himself were standing here, face full of glory, eyes full of tears, and he held out his arms and his nail-printed hands, is there any way you could say no to this man? Do you get Jesus? Do you understand him? You do only if, according to this passage, you recognize that it reveals God's nature, he sustains God's creation, he leads God's new creation, the church, his very body, and he unites us to God through the work of the cross. This concludes our podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Join us next time as Dr. Goodman shares a sermon entitled, How to Argue About Politics. I'm your host, John Parker, and this has been Hillcrest To Go. For more information, please contact us at hillcrest.church.